Hello, hello. Hey, up. What's up? What's good? Que cosa sucede? Ni hao, privyet. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, intellectual, and artistic people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. Fantastic, fantastic show for you today with an inspirational guest, former professional footballer, and current advocate for the awareness and support of gambling addiction, Tony Kelly joins the show. In over a nine-year career, Tony played professional football in Sweden's second division, as well as the second, third, and fourth division in England's football pyramid. He spent three years at Stoke City and had numerous highs and lows during that period, mainly a Wembley Cup winner's medal and a famous goal at Anfield in a 2-2 draw at the 91 League Cup. Ah, it's a tremendous nutmeg. Professionally, he was the youngest ever player at the first team at Bristol City, but unfortunately his blossoming football career was marred by a series of mishaps and misdeeds which drove him to disaster. Ruined by addiction to gambling, he lost his job, his career, his partner, and all of his money. Tony wrote the book Red Card to invite the public, his family, friends into his secret hell of racism, despair, depression, stardom, gambling addiction, and ultimately self-destruction. Red Card is a tragic yet uplifting story of a sportsman battle with his demons both on and off the pitch. In addition to writing the book Red Card, Tony founded Kelly's Red Card Consultancy, which aimed to make sure that people from all backgrounds and cultures are educated about the dangers of gambling addiction and the impact it can have. The team works with all agencies including schools, colleges, and sports clubs, prison and probation services, and others to help create a more stable and healthy society in the future. The vision is to become a long-term beneficial and supportive service for all who experience problem gambling. On today's episode, Tony talks about his, his early years in football and how his athletic prowess essentially threw him to the fire. At a young age, surrounded by adults, he found himself overwhelmed by life off the pitch, which ultimately led to poor athletic performance. Tony also discusses about the process of riding red card and how it was looking back on those devastating experiences. Finally, Tony shares with us the resources that Kelly's Red Card Consultancy offers. This was a very impactful conversation for me. I was longing to have Tony on the show. Coincidentally, Tony and I both had a Premier League match on during the interview, and I thought that was quite appropriate for our conversation. His story is inspirational. I think it's one that everybody should hear. Addiction can be an overwhelming feeling, yet often addicts do everything they can to maintain a rigid structure in their lives in hopes of hiding their addiction and keeping their story hidden from the casual observer. One thing I love about Tony and Red Card is that they're not looking to eliminate gambling. Instead, they highlight the dangers that come with the activity and how one can rise above it and not let it consume their lives. Stoked to have Tony on the show. He's my favorite mate from the West Midlands and Coventry. Thrilled for everyone to meet him, so let's go ahead and bring on sports gambling advocate Tony Kelly and let's learn. You alright? Yeah, good thanks. Good thanks, mate. Just a little bit ago, I was watching the amazing goal you scored at Anfield. You were the youngest ever first member at Bristol City. What was that time like? And did you feel that you were emotionally ready for that experience? I think leaving school at 16 and, and having the opportunity to, um, to have that two-year scholarship at Bristol City, um, that, that in itself was, was you know, part, part of my dream realised because now I'm actually at a professional football club. I'm on the way to become a professional footballer. Um, but I think what, what, in terms of maturity, you know, we, we talk about this within our, with our work with gambling and all that in terms of our brains developing. So obviously not fully developed, obviously still not mature. Um, and I think with some, within some cases, when success happens so early, it's, for, for someone so young, it's, it's hard to sort of gauge and it's hard to cope with it, basically. Um, and so being the youngest player 
to play in Bristol City's first team at 16 and 244 days is quite unheard of them days. Um, so everyone, family and friends thought, you know, you know, this is Tony's going to go on to be a star at Bristol City, etc. You know, he's going to get a professional contract at 18. Um, but it, it, just, it just transpired that although, yes, yeah, a great achievement for me, and, uh, you know, and, and it's in the, in the record, Bristol City record books, I think it lasted for 20 years. Um, but, yeah, and I went on to play seven more times in the first team, 16 and 17 years old. But I think attitude-wise and maturity-wise, that's, that's where I struggle. And that's where, you know, getting ahead of yourself and, you know, an example would be, would be when um, after that, after that, you know, initial euphoria of, of scoring and, you know, well, scoring the first team as well at 17. Um, and then, then thinking in your head that, oh, I've made it. So I was, I was partying with, with the senior pros who were like 22, 23 and coming in because we're in digs. When you, when you move from one city to another, like Coventry to Bristol, they, they put you in digs with a family uh, and a great family. And, um, but I was coming in at three o'clock in the morning as a, as a 16, 17 year old party nightclub on a Sunday. It just didn't go down too well because they have to report back your behaviour and attitude to the club. And so my, my, I had bad reports. So the attitude wasn't there, but the talent was there. And as they say in, in a lot of um, industries now, it's not just about the talent. Do you feel that there's enough resources in place for young athletes? Because that's a whole lot of stuff going on at one point here you are trying to make it in the world make like you said make your dream but at the same time probably not quite ready to be hanging out and, and like you said partying with adults yeah yeah Def definitely them days there's no actual resources in terms of education about all that um about life after football about you know what you've got to do to you know complete that two-year apprenticeship and it's not just about your, your football ability so there's nothing like that around i think today particularly in the Premier League and Championship. There's more, you know, I've, I've worked at Tottenham's training ground for a couple of years, um, as recently as 2012. And so I've seen how, <clears throat> I've seen how it all operates. So there's actual, like, more or less classroom-style things where, where the 16, 17-year-olds will go in and have a session on this and a session on that, you know, part of their education, NVQ levels and all that. So the football has completely changed in terms of young people, <clears throat> you know, growing up in, in the professional football world has changed. There is a lot more out there to educate them on all, on all kinds of things, which we didn't have in, in the 80s. For you at that age, I know that football was something you did day in and out and that you had dreamed it. So was it actually probably harder off the pitch during those days? Yeah, when I, when I turned professional, yeah, definitely. Because, you know, you have to look at the pitfalls. You know, sometimes you don't recognise them. And whether that's, you know, going out regularly, you know, partying, whether that's women, whether that's drinking, whether that's gambling, whatever it is, though, all those kind of pitfalls that's why you hear so many players that burst upon the scene you know a 20 21 year old weather and then a couple of years later you never hear of them so it's, it's a matter of you know <clears throat> managing yourself off the pitch as well as on the pitch and that's why the top professionals you know the Shearers and the Paul Lynch's of this world you know that's why they have longevity and that's why they stayed at the top for so many years because they live their life the right way, you know. And I think that's, yeah, I've, I struggled as, and obviously we're all, you know, I've been in lots of different, you know, professional football dressing rooms and every, and there's, there's lots of different characters, you know, and so, you know, we're all, we're all different. And so we, we all can't be an Alan Shearer and stay behind for two hours after training and practice shooting and crossing, you know, we're not all like that, you know. So some, you know, will have that tendency to be a bit wild off the football pitch and, and enjoy that party and lifestyle. It's just, it's just somehow you've got to, you've got to manage that if you, if you really want to have longevity in the game. You've remarked that in the past that your time at Stoke, that your form was mm. sporadic. 
your form was sporadic yeah. because of so many things going on just off the pitch for you mentally, emotionally. So can you talk more about that? I think when I signed for Stoke, um, I was playing I was playing for, say, Oldman City, which is a semi-professional football club, um, on, a, on a Tuesday night. And then I, within the space of four days, I was playing in the second division, second tier of football against Port Vale in front of 23,000. So that change within five days was, was really, really hard. Um, really going from whatever it was, £200 a week at, as a postman and playing for, say, Albans to X amount of money playing for Stoke and getting this, the, this you know, I think it was 15 grand sign on fee, 99, which is a lot of money. Um, so the whole change, I had to adjust to that. And I found it difficult to start with in terms of um, the, the speed of professional football. Um, you know, it's, it's a different level in terms of professional football. Professional football is a different level. I had to get used to that. And then there's a the camaraderie and the banter in the dress room. I had to get used to that because, you know, you, you've got to be, <laughs> I quickly learned, I quickly learned that you've got to be mentally strong in, in, a, in a professional football dressing room because you do get the piss taken out of you a lot. And, 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 it, and it goes with the territory, unfortunately. You know, so you just got to be strong mentally. So getting used to all that. And then, yeah, um, I think that, you know, the, the gambling came in a bit later, but but I it took me time to adjust to professional football. And I think, you know, uh, my form being sporadic was all part of that, of adjusting to actually playing in second division football. Uh, slowly, you know, I got used to it and slowly you had some, had some really good spells. Um, but once once the gambling addiction took over, I think that's where I really, really struggled. That's where most, you know, sleepless nights, you know, being depressed, isolated, stop going out with the players, you know, like lying to my missus and all that, you know, not because my, miss, my missus was still in London. So sometimes I'd, you know, lie and say we've got trained on Sunday, so I can't come back, you know, when really I'd just, I'd just be gambling in the casino all day or whatever. So, yeah, it, it started to have an effect on me mentally and, and on the football pitch. Yeah, yeah, pr- probably, yeah, the Stoke, Stoke days is when it really all started. You mentioned about lying that and kind of keeping a secret. I, I noticed a lot of times with addiction, whatever the addiction is for, people try to keep it a secret. And were you, so were you aware of the possible perception and were there, what were some of the lengths you went to keep the addiction hidden from everyone else? Yeah, I, did. I, I, um, I had lots of different scenarios. I mean, one time I had a, a bad week, which was obviously on a regular basis. And I had to go into Lou Makara's office and, and ask for a, for a sub yeah. uh, from, from Petty Cash. Um, and and uh, that, that was a sort of opportunity where part, part of me wanted to open up and, and just say to Lou, look, this is what's happening. But, you know, we say about gambling addicts, we stay in denial for years and we don't get help until you hit rock bottom. And that's how it was with me. I just couldn't, you know, there, there is an element of shame and, and um, guilt that, that you, you know, you can't, hard to deal with. You know, I don't, I don't talk to any of the players about it. You know, all the debts I've got that are piling up. You know, like I said, lying to the lying to missus and deceiving her. Um, so you just keep it to yourself. You're in your own little world. Um, and, you, and you're terrified to come out, you know, and talk, and talk about it openly because, you know, you don't want to perceive as weak, you know, and you don't want to bring shame on yourself. You will feel guilty and all that. So you just, you just ride with it. And unfortunately, while you're doing that, you know, you're digging yourself a, a deeper and deeper hole. And, and that's unfortunately, that's the sort of mindset of a gambler. I'm curious on, because with gambling, the most excitement is the uncertainty that comes with it. How did you handle the uncertainty, both positive and negative, on a daily basis with that? Because it can be fun, but at the same time, it's almost like a, that loss of control does lead into other areas of your life. So were you, were you compensating by maybe trying to be more organized in other areas? Or how did you just handle the, the uncertainty that came with enjoying something as gambling? 
Yeah, that's that's the strange thing about gambling, particularly when you're you're gambling to a level I was, you know, a compulsive gambler. Is that you? Do, there is an element of of enjoying it. There is an element of looking forward to. So I used to look forward to going to the casino. You know, you get your drinks, you get your sandwiches, and it's all nice and comfy. You know, you really, really did, did enjoy looking at it. It's only it's only five five hours later when you walk out skin that, that you start to realise, wow, this is crazy. But that's been on a that was a regular basis. So. Yeah, that that there's no doubt about it. That whatever form of gambling it is, that there's an element of, you know, you do enjoy doing it, but you don't enjoy losing, um, and you have to suffer the consequences. And that's why we say today that you know <clears throat> it's hard when people say, "Oh, why don't you just stop?" It's once you're on that spar and that and that decline, it's very, very, very difficult to stop. Um, I, I I had a lot of support in terms of you know I've got a big family. I had one or two friends that were telling me, "Be careful with your gambling, etc." Uh, Mom saying, "Be careful." with your money um but like we said we don't we don't listen to the loved ones and ones close to us you know and i didn't i just continued and continued uh, until obviously yeah eventually was going to hit rock bottom at some point um but i there was opportunities like i said with the lumakai there was opportunity to talk to, to talk to lou about it and if i would have at that particular time then obviously it would have been open it would have went to the fa and we would have had meetings and probably went sporting chance clinic and got help so it could have been different but that's why I say interventions absolutely massive in terms of people in, 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 intervening now. But yes, it's a, it's a struggle uh, mentally. I think the mental aspect is huge. Um, you know, particularly you know during those three years at Stoke. Um, you know, going onto a football fit, pitch. Um, you know, paying. I think my average average game was about sixteen, seventeen thousand then. But going onto a football pitch and having to not only perform and think about performing in front of a crowd, because obviously as a footballer, particularly in my position on the wing and all that, you're next to the crowd, you get slaughtered, you know, so I've got that in my mind thinking about, you know, everything's got to be right. My first touch has got to be right. All those things. And then I've got the, then I've got the thoughts of is my accumulator going to come in today and be able to pay the mortgage next week. Mm. So I've got all this stuff going on in my head and there's no way that you can focus and perform to a level when you've got all that stuff going on in your head. Um, so mentally, yeah, mentally, it was really, really hard. The book is Red Card. But while you were writing it, did you find it was difficult to relive some of those memories? That's interesting because um, whether this has got anything to do with um, faith or not, I don't know. But in 2010, I was working for um, Network Rail. So I was obviously out of football, working Network Rail now. And um, I had a... I had a just a, a one-off visit by by a local chaplain. Yeah. Um, I, wor- I worked alone in a signal box, so, you know, we wasn't allowed visitors, etc. But I had this one visit on a Sunday. It was quiet. There's no trains, etc. And he sat down um, and he had a Bible with him and we sat down and we talked. And this was the same year that I was going bankrupt with £192,000 bankruptcy file. And the same year that I was properly going to finish with the, with my ex of 20-odd years. <clears throat> so my life was a bit of a mess. Mm-hmm. We sat and talked, but it wasn't. A, we talked about. We wrote out a prayer, which I now know was a salvation prayer. But we wrote that out. We talked um, about hope, about the life and future. But it wasn't a case of that when he left, that everything's going to be rosy and things are going to change. But when he left, I did feel better. I, felt, I started to regain my faith a little bit in terms of you know reading scriptures in the Bible, praying a bit more. Um, because when I was younger, you know, I always had a belief in god but never sort of wasn't really practicing it um so when he left it was a gradual thing um i was still gambling obviously it was a gradual thing but the bankruptcy went through that was a start so that wiped out my 192 pound debt uh, i hadn't stopped gambling yet 
Um, and, but then three years later, 2013, uh, when I had the, a chat with my sister, there was a few snippets coming out in the press um, about footballers gambling, their gambling addiction, one or two players. And my sister just said to me, why don't you put your story to print, try and write something. Now, <laughs> I wouldn't know where to start to write a book for starters. That's what I said to her. So then she said, look, just do a few paragraphs. You know, she was a head teacher. She said, send it to me and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll have a look. So I, I wrote, I can't remember how long, but I think it was near, near, nearly a chapter, growing up in Comtree as a nine-year-old, you know, going through racism and all the rest of it, going on to professional football and then going on to the whole addiction story. So I wrote for you a first chapter and she loved it and she said, you can do this. Um, and so when you say that, you know, did it help and was it therapeutic and, and all these things that people say to me, when I started writing properly then to, to you know commit to it I couldn't stop writing and there was no computer there was no laptop there was no ghost writing which is what I hate all that by the way it was it was a pen and paper a4 paper and I had this manuscript that came up here 18 months later and I couldn't believe it I actually finished it and as I said I said to my sister you know I can't believe we've I've finished it so she said, right, just send it to, um, you know, a few publishers online. We had a couple in America and then we had some in England. So we went with one in England. And so I think the main reason, then obviously the publisher came on board and it was going to be published. And I remember the day that I got the post and I had 15 copies of Red Card because you get free 15 copies of friends and family. And when that came through the post, it was like surreal. I've got this book in my hand that I actually wrote. And it's just, it's just an amazing feeling, to be honest with you. <clears throat> so... That wasn't on the agenda. That wasn't something I envisaged, but it's, it's, it happened and it's amazing. And that's why I say I talk about being, being God's work and, and the new calling and the new chapter in my life, you know, because I never thought in a million years that I could write a book. Then the, the, the thing, when I think about the reason behind it, I think it was more about there's so many, I've got a massive family and there's so many, you know, cousins and this, that, the other, some that have no idea what I've been through with the gambling. Um, Sometimes I'll turn, I'll turn into a functional old battered car and they'll say, God, you use a professional football for God. How can you only drive a Porsche and blah, blah. And I'll have, have, have to try and explain, but I don't want to explain it all. So I wanted to get it out to the, to the extended family to let everybody know what I've actually been through. And then also at the same time, raise awareness for everybody else in society that it, that it can happen to anybody, not just footballers. So that was a big reason. And I think the feedback from from the book going on national TV and BBC Breakfast and all the rest of it, I think that's that was that's what made my mind that I've got to do more. So yeah, it really did help. It helped me in terms of the future, and it helped me in terms of you know wanting to do more for for society in helping others. So how's those experiences been in helping others? Because I know that it was that chance meeting with the chaplain too that started things in a new direction for you, and, and faith became such a huge part of your journey. So how has your life been augmented just by helping others and, and being able to share the faith and the importance of hope? Yeah, I think it's been huge for me. Uh, not just for me, but the, the feedback I get from people. So when I when I um, started to set up Red Car Gambling Sport Project, the not-for-profit organization, um, again, I talk about you know, not coming from a business background, not having a title of CEO. All these things were just things that never dreamed of but but here i am today author ceo running an organization have a team under me they're things that it just makes me believe that there is hope for anybody you know, to come out of adversity you know and come out come out with hope because some people unfortunately with the gambling some people get to that place of hopelessness where there is no hope and that's that's what i want to try and change that narrative that there's always hope um so when i started a project 
And I remember, um, and, and another thing, so apart from the business side of things and running, running an organization, apart from being an author, the other um, skill set that I never heard, I never knew that I had, yeah, was, was um, public speaking. So I remember, I remember I had I, uh, the, the first ever talk that I'd done was in Coventry at Orsley Hotel with a friend of mine who runs the, a black and Asian gala business evening every year. 250 people, um, bow tie job and all that. And she, uh, the book had come out and she called me and said, oh, you know, Tony, your book's come out with, with down a speaker. You know, this is like a week before. And she goes, we're down a speaker. Would you, would you come and, you know, just talk about your book for 15 minutes yet? And I'm on the phone, my heart sank because I thought, fucking hell, I can't do this. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine yeah. getting up yeah. and talking in front of 250 people because I've never done it before. So, um, I thought, I thought about it and I was like, look, this, obviously God must have said to me, you, you can do this. So I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it. So we, we got a table from a family, 10 people to a table it was, and we got so I had some support, you know what I mean? And then, yeah, the, when I came to my point of sharing my journey with football and gambling, I think afterwards was when it really hit home that, wow, this, this resonates with a lot of people. You know, I don't realise how big gambling addiction is. And I don't realise that what you've just done for 15, 20 minutes is, you know, people want to hear more of it. Um, I had girls coming up to our girls, women, 22, 23, saying about they find their dad's betting slits in the bin, <clears throat> stuff like that. I know my dad's gambling. So I thought, right, this, this really hits home. So from that moment onwards, that's when I realised that, you know, forget about, you know, nerves and all that stuff, whatever. You know, Prime Minister has nerves. Anybody has nerves, as a public speaker, that's just natural. It's how you fight them. So, you know, I... Um, Thought, yeah, this is this is what I want to do. I want to start educating people. Um, done a couple of little courses, and then I set up the uh, the red card team in terms of counsellors and addiction specialists, so they can they can help in the facilitation of a workshop. And yeah, and red card was born in 2015, um, and it's been a, since then. Uh, we, we 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 educate all kinds really because we've been to you know we've been to schools and colleges for the young people. And we've been to Rotary clubs and rehab centres for older people and that. So we, it's a whole range of different places that we might end up because I could get <clears throat> an email from any organisation. Can you come in and do a workshop for our staff, whatever? We've done staff as well. Um, but I'd say our primary target audience and our passion is to support, you know, young people uh, because, you know, young people are the ones that, you know, need uh, intervention uh, before they, before as far as our control and ruin their lives. So, yes, it's a brilliant journey. A lot more to do still. Um, you know, we're still, yeah, we're still growing. We've still got a lot of work. We've got just one or two year contract to educate the Bain community, uh, which starts in June. That's a two year pilot project. So that's going to be really good. Um, uh, and then obviously, you know, again, the, the second book. Love it. Yeah. Uh, one thing yeah. I love about your, your red card organization is that just a diverse background. You've got the sports yeah. athletic background, but you also got psychologists, counseling, everything. So it's the whole gamut. What are the, some of the resources that Red Card Gambling Project provides? So apart from generally delivering, uh, generally our workshop would be, it could, it could be, there's sort of two parts. It could be a two-hour full-scale workshop, which, which you know, basically um, contains everything, to, with all aspects of problem gambling, everything from crying to the emotional side to the mental health side, advertising promotion, even the industry, how the industry works. Because I worked with the Gambling Commission for nine months recently. Uh, so I've got to know a little bit how it how it works and how the operators work, you know. So, yeah, we touched a little bit about that. And then obviously the, all, all the impacts of gambling addiction. 
And then within our work, uh, we'll have, you know, we have phone consultancy. So someone could, a parent could just talk up for a consultation and have a chat over the phone. Um, and then we have there's a, there's a small part of it is the therapy. So if someone calls up Red Card, uh, we can refer them to one of our therapists. I think we've got about seven or eight in the team. Um, but apart from that, if, if, for instance, they don't, you know, they live two or three hours away from one of our therapists, then we'll just signpost them to one of the treatment services. So we do a lot of signposting to Gamcare and Gamble Aware, the big treatment uh, providers. Yeah, so it's all about it's all about working together, really. You know, it's all about a collective effort from everybody, and that's that's just not just that's Red Card, that's the treatment providers, that's the government, that's the gambling commission. Everybody working together, and that that's that's. You know, I'm quite vocal in terms of forums that we have with different meetings, and I, and I always say it's not about everybody for themselves. It's about everybody pulling together. You know, we all want safer gambling, and I will say one of the things that we sort of stress in in our work, Red Card, is that we are not about waving the red flag and saying ban gambling and all that nonsense you know what yeah. i mean because you know we have to accept and we have to realize that gambling it's been around for donkey's years and it's um it is a pastime and it is part of british culture and globally um and people there's there's millions of people that enjoy it without ever encountering gambling harm and that's a fact so it's, it's only it's a small proportion that that encounter gambling harm so it, it, we, all we have to do is just you know continue with the education awareness to, to to let people know that what can happen but it's not about you know waving the flag and saying oh bang gambling it's bad for you etc yeah so it's just you know that's just the point that we really stress well i love that approach another thing i that i enjoy about you is just the progress that you've had and the changing uh, just of yourself your own evolution that you've had over the years with that i know that you've had a lot of introspection faith as priority in life and i'm just curious what do you enjoy reading over the last year um, I, I don't, I haven't read a lot of full books, Okay. but I just, yeah, I just like, I read, I read different, obviously scriptures and the Bible, things that relate to me when I was um, reading Matthew six and seven the other day and someone called me up and said, Oh, you know, um, it's, it's someone, someone asked me to do a similar thing to this, but to do a sort of podcast and a, and a workshop with them and all that. And they come from a real strong faith background. Um, and they said, oh, you know, just open up six and seven. I'd open up David six, Matthew six and seven and we were reading it. And it was about um, ask and you receive. And they, they, were say, they were saying to me that when I first started with this red car project, um, those that know about funding, you know, it's, it's not easy to get funding. You have to tick all the boxes, you know. So these are the things I had to learn. So the first year or two was really, really frustrating because obviously we're getting turned down for funding. We might not have the governance in place, all that stuff. Um, and I'll just refer back to certain things in the Bible where you have to have patience and you have to have faith and it will come together if, if you really want it and if you really believe it and then to three years later to the amount of funding we've received now we've just got another funding acceptance so yeah the, the faith and the hope thing is, is, is big for me that's why I read, read certain things in the Bible um, I like um, what are the things where I read um, I like personal journeys I suppose people's yeah. personal journeys yeah I think that's one of the things that probably inspires me i read certain different people's personal journeys because you know there's so many people that have had some kind of trauma or adversity in their life you know from younger but then but then find the strength in different ways to come out on top you know and that that's what i love that's what i love i love that that hope you know what i mean so yeah that's that's they're the kind of things that i read in i agree and that's and your story fits right in with that for you what are your mental health practices that you use on a daily basis 
men- mentally, I think, you, in terms of the gambling side of things, you, you have to put, I say to people, you have to put your own prevention tools in place because we have this thing where there's a lot of ex-gamblers that um, have blamed the industry for, for them going through the addiction and that. Um, now, the industry has, you know, has a part to play yeah, and contributes to, to people, you know, getting involved in gambling with the bonuses and enticing people and the advertising and all different things. Um, so they, they have a part to play, of course, but I, I've, I'm sort of a mindset that you have to have, we have to take some responsibility ourselves, yeah, as individuals. Um, and that's why I say one of the things I do and people, you know, I get people to do is, is make sure that you put your own prevention tools in place. And that'll be excluding yourself from all the bookmakers. That'll be blocking yourselves from, from all the apps with, through GamStop or whatever. Um, yeah, making sure your bank can't you know, take banking tran- uh, gambling transactions. So all these things, if you really, really, you know, want to stay away from gambling, they're the things you have to do. So you have to. So that's what I sort of promote. Yeah, do, do your own prevention as well as all the other sources out there. How can people grab the book? So the first book, obviously, 2015 was published, mm-hmm. Red Card. That ended in 2000. Um, so it's published. Yeah, that book ended in 2015. When I say it ended, I mean the story of Red yeah, Card yeah. and my journey ended in 2015. So Red Card Gambling Support Project wasn't born. So what happened is that in the last couple of years, people have been saying to me, you know, what's happened in the last six years? Now we're 2021 because people want to know, you know, what happened to you? Yeah, you recovered from gambling addiction, but what did you go on to do? So I thought, yes, yeah, that's, that's right, actually, when I think about it. So we got together and um, started about 18 months ago. Now, Red Card 2, the sequel, has been um, public. Well, uh, been, yeah, publication date is going to be in April. Um, it's called Red Card in brackets, subtitles, I Bet You Can Win. Uh, that's what it's called. And it's basically, it's, it's because of what's happened in the last six or seven years, it's, it's how my journey, journey has evolved from the recovery of gambling addiction to then setting up a red card to then educate people, all the people I've met, you know, in parliament and different places um, to what exactly what red card is about today and what I'm doing. So it's a really good follow up story. So people will get to, to hear and see what I've done over the last six years and where I am today. So uh, that will come out in April. I'm waiting for a publication date, but um, it will be, it will be published on the, on the red card website. Uh, so the red card website is, Kelly's Red Card Consultancy.co.uk. That's Kelly's Red Card Consultancy.co.uk. Uh, if you Google Red Card Attorney Kelly, you'll get pages and pages of stuff anyway. Um, yeah, and obviously we're on we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook and we're on LinkedIn. So you can find me anywhere, basically. Uh, but yeah, that's what we're gonna, we Red Card are gonna continue. The book will come out in April, we'll promote that, and then we'll continue doing doing the work that we're doing and uh, continue to educate and help people going forward. Fantastic. I'm looking forward to book number two. And, and if you keep up your busy life, we're going to have book three in, in no time, I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah, it could be. You never know, Randall, mate. You never know. And, and is, it, is it still 1-0? Uh, is it Leeds still 1-0? On, on yeah, Leeds. Leeds 1-0. I didn't even know. Oh, Leeds. I like, I like Leeds. I like Leeds. As a, as, those Yorkshire boys, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they, they, I think they're a lot of people's favorite second team, you know? I yeah. do. Yeah. yeah. I felt like I already knew you before we chatted. So that's, <laughs> yeah, I think that's yeah. why I was smiling the whole time because yeah. it's like I felt like you're an old friend. Make sure you lock me up. I will. Make sure you lock me up so we can, we can meet up and have a drink. Of course. I, I'm going to hold you to that. I would love it. Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. That'd be good. That'd be good. That was, it was a pleasure. Really, really, thank you so much. I know we'll chat again, but thank you so much for today, Tony. Appreciate it, Randall. Thanks, right. mate. Cheers. Take care, mate. Cheers. 
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Much appreciation to Tony. Be on the lookout for his second book, which will come out later this spring. And for more information, check out Kelly's RedCarConsultancy.co.uk. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway Show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento. I'm here live. I'm not a cat. I can I can see that. <laughs>